Hey, listener, just wanted to put a disclaimer in this uh, podcast because there is some discussion about the game Custer's Revenge between the four and a half and five and a half minute mark, including some references to the sexual assaults depicted in that game. Welcome to season two of the Humor and Games podcast, a podcast where we think about how all things funny are designed, experienced, and analyzed in games and play. My name is Mark Lajeunesse, and my co-producers are Scott Young and Andre Zanescu. Today we think about how humor changes when games change forms. From shifting audiences and market demands, from analog to digital games, and from the individual play experience to group play, how does humor in games change across these differences? We start with Dr. Carly Kosurek, video games historian and professor of digital humanities and media studies at Illinois Tech. Dr. Kosurek gives a brief history of video game marketing, the kinds of humor embedded in games, and how humor changed with the imagined gaming audience. You know, marketing and advertising really relies on shifting ideas about what's, what's funny, right? And so I think a lot of times we're kind of looking at kind of breaking down um, things that are supposed to be funny and thinking about like, well, who's that funny for? Or like, who's it at the expense of? I mean, definitely if you look at video game advertisements from like the the early to mid nineties, like they're really, really, really sexist. They're also really, really, really anchored in humor. It's just sexist humor, right? And so being able to think about those and kind of like who are the winners and losers, um, I think is really important. Do you think that uh, games or video games have a, kind of special handle on how humor works or was it just a a a feature of the times in in the 90s i think it's fairly specific to games i'm not saying that you're not seeing similar jokes elsewhere like definitely this is something that's widespread um, through pop culture at the time but the games industry in particular had really really zoomed in like laser focus on our audience is like tween and teen boys Right. And so they really weren't interested in anyone else. And so it was fine if your ads were completely alienating everyone else because you had an idea of who you're selling to. And, and you'll see this in the game magazines too. Like there's letters to the editor and stuff where there's back and forth about this. And they're just like, our audience is only this. Right. And so it's, it's in some ways like the humor actually functions as a filter, right? Like they're actually using it to tell people who this is for. Um, and yeah, games does it, I think, in some ways to a greater degree than other areas of pop culture do at the time, right? So like, if you look at really early games, like I'm talking like, you know, the Pong era, like 1972, like through most of the 1970s, um, arcade games are really kind of being marketed as for adults, right? Like they're really intended to be bar games or to go in bowling alleys or other places. So like children are playing them, but they're not necessarily the primary consumer. Um, and similarly, if you look at, um, you know, console ads from the time. And Michael Newman's written about this a lot. Rayford Gwen has written about this a lot. Um, you see these ads of like families playing and like they'll have like the grandmother playing and it's like a little bit jokey, but not super jokey, right? Because the joke is your whole family will want to play this and you'll all line up in the living room. Um, so that's actually kind of a joke about inclusion, right? Or about like it being for everyone. Um, after the, the big crash in like 82, 83, that really starts to shift. Um, and so the industry like kind of retreats into itself and gets really, really focused on what they see as their core audience. And so they're only selling to certain people. And that means it's fine to alienate everyone else. Right. Um, but there's always been kind of, I think, and I think this has to do with the diversity of the workforce and things like that. I mean, definitely the games industry for a very long time had kind of like a default, um, kind of like heterosexist masculinist humor where it's like, 
jokes for straight dudes, right? Like, and so you have things like um, Atari's Gotcha that gets called the boob game because they make the controllers like these pink rubber globes. And, and then like the ad is a woman in lingerie maybe being chased or maybe they're dancing. It's unclear, right? Um, and so there's things like that where it's like, okay, like I can tell this is like supposed to be fun, but who is it fun for, right? Um, similarly, if you look at the um, the computer space, ads right which is the the game that precedes pong right um they, they actually have this like the beautiful like fiberglass cabinet is like and it's being shown off by like a woman in lingerie um which is like the same way you sell like boats and cars and stuff to some extent but like it's a weird choice right but it's also a choice that indicates kind of like who's meant to be consuming this thing or who do they think actually cares about this thing um so you see a lot of that i mean obviously like there was just a, a really um good good um episode of decoder ring about you know custer's revenge and the way that that game is kind of like billed as humor but it's like not funny it's actually like super appalling because like the only joke is like about raping indigenous women which is like horrific right um and i think the people making it thought it was a joke or like because they don't have to think about how, how other people feel or exist or something but like it's appalling but i think if you look uh, more recently, like, I think things are shifting. I think a lot of the early games that are funny are funny because they're, like, Spencer's gift store, like, weird sexist joke funny. Um, and I think we're seeing, like, a bright, a, a broader array of things being made by a broader array of people. And, and that, like, makes, makes things more interesting. So we got a sense of how humor changes over time, but how does humor change across format? We turn to Dr. Aaron Trammell, Assistant Professor of Informatics at UC Irvine, about analog and digital humor differences. Tabletop games can be profoundly bad at being humorous. So let's start there. There are some very, like there, there's, you know, the, the, the joke I tell people about tabletop games is um, my, my nephews came to stay last summer and I have a room, I'm a huge board game fan and I have a room of, all of my board games, my nephews are like uh, three and six respectively. So this game room and they're sleeping in it, right? Cause that's where the, the pullout couch is. And I'm like, okay guys, these are grown up games. They're not fun. Don't touch them. Cause I don't want them pulling them off the shelves, right? I don't want them, you know, maybe choking on the pieces. Uh, they're really unkid friendly in a lot of different ways. And, and that's just the start of it, right? Like you, you play a game like Hansa Teutonica, which I'm probably mispronouncing, which is about uh, shipping uh, goods around a network of merchant guilds in like mid-Renaissance Germany. And this is, this is not a funny conceit for a game. Um, there's really no humor in the game as you basically figure out how to construct this network and move your, your, your resources around. And so in that way, it's, it's kind of profoundly unfunny. Um, right, like Carcassonne, which is known for a long time as a, a gateway game, is a game where um, you're just kind of building out these cities and castles and landscapes, and you're putting robbers and farmers on the road, and that's that's it. If if you think that's a funny conceit, I don't know what your sense of humor is, but it's it's a really dry conceit for a game um, in reality. So uh, that's not a funny game either. Settlers of Catan, the famous Settlers of Catan, right? Uh, here's a, a game that might have a little more humor. Um, there is a, an opportunity in Settlers of Catan to move the robber figure around and take money from someone else. So there's that that joke that that, that get that joke. Uh, sorry, take that joke, where you, you've uh, you've deprived someone of something and you can laugh at them. 
Or the other joke from Settlers Catan is, you know, do you have any bricks or do you have any sheep? And no one wants to trade. So you're just sitting there asking the same question every single round until you finally get the thing you want. So, right, these are not funny games. These are not really humorous games. And so I think if Euro games were your sort of touchstone to tabletop gaming, you'd come around to them saying, well, this isn't really a humorous genre. I don't know if um, analog games have the same sense of humor as digital games. So when I, you asked me the other half, right, which is how does it differ from digital games? Um, for, first off, I think this is gonna differ to anybody who is listening, because I think we all have different senses of humor. And the, the thing that I think is funny might not be the thing that's funny for somebody else. Um, but I think about some of my favorite, most humorous games of all time being sort of point and click adventure games. Um, and I, you know, it depends on the different games that you're playing. Like I think the Lucas Arts games had a really different sense of humor than the Sierra games. Um, the Lucas Arts ones generally had more puns in the dialogue and were more playful in that regard. And the Sierra games again did the sort of joke where it was like your character died falling off the stairs for the tenth time in a row. Isn't that really funny? Um, and you know, for me, I've got that sense of humor. I thought that was really funny growing up. Um, and I, I still kind of think it's funny that they do it right. Because again, I saw it coming a mile away. I knew I was going to die there. And I did die there. And that was a frustrating part of the game that made me laugh. Um, but the, you know, the wordplay can be really fun, also, funny also. Tabletop games, hobby games tend to be a little more... Uh, dry and you know it's only the the designers who really lean into the theming who i think have a lot of the humor in those games one of the games that dr tramell brought up in our conversation that listeners might be more familiar with is magic the gathering um magic the gathering on the other hand which is a game i adore um uh, uses humor in its flavor text i think this is one of the primary places that they use humor and they also sometimes do mechanical jokes in some of their sets, they do um, kind of special sets occasionally where they kind of loosen their belt and they throw out some rules and they'll do some things that they couldn't do in the other sets. And those are the jokes, right? So in Magic the Gathering, right, there's goblins. And we know goblins in the world of Magic the Gathering are silly. Um, they're not that smart. And they're going to do things that are kind of foolish. And so the joke in Magic the Gathering is about the goblin in the flavor text, like, you know, um, running into another group of enemies with a bomb, not thinking it's going to die. And that's funny, right? Because you know that this is what a goblin is in Magic the Gathering, and this is how goblins operate. That's the joke, is that the, the goblins are basically cannon fodder, and they're silly. Um, um, whereas the mechanical jokes that Magic the Gathering tells are more like, um, here's two cards, and if you got both of the cards in your deck, you could put them together into a bigger card. And even the title on the top of the cards is now like 10 words long and it spans both cards. And so it all works together. And that's funny because look at how we can combine cards in a way you didn't expect us to combine cards before. Um, and so, and that's just an easy example of how that kind of works. But magic, like many analog and tabletop games, is meant to be played with other people. So what happens to humor when we all get together and play? In magic, the single player mode of humor is reading those cards looking at these things, thinking about how these systems operate together in humorous ways. Um, the one thing I would say with Magic, though, is that the single-player card humor does extend to the tabletop culture of people who play it. So it wouldn't be odd for somebody who gets a kick out of the sort of goblin humor 
in Magic to make a goblin deck and then to make jokes about their goblins while they're playing other people in, the, the, in a game, right? Because the deck is then so thematically linked to that kind of character. We'll revisit Dr. Trammell's tabletop expertise in a moment, but first we're going to take a brief detour to another form of analog play, Nordic LARP, to consider how players negotiate the boundaries of humor in role-playing, in a conversation with our very own Scott DeYoung and Dr. Yako Stenros from Tampere University. I think it varies from LARP to LARP. In the Nordic tradition, uh, uh, these are the, the LARPs are very bespoke in the sense that you create the, the rules and the mechanics for a specific LARP. So there isn't a shared, for example, rule set from, from one LARP to another. Uh, so um, you would have, have to look at each LARP as, a, as an individual work as to how is humor incorporated into it. Humor as a mechanic is, is actually quite seldom used uh, in LARPs. Uh, so it's, I think it's more often brought in by the players than the designers, unless, I mean, we're, unless we're feel, dealing with something that is, is clearly marked as a satire. I think that's really interesting. And I think perhaps it, it likens to why LARPs are so performative is why it allows players to do that. Um, and one of the, the things that we've discussed um, together, but also that I found really interesting is kind of this, this difference between kind of play and performance, right? And you're mentioning how, you know, you're going to want to break character to laugh so much, but at the same time, uh, you want to hold it all in. And so from a play standpoint, kind of, is there lines drawn in the sand for players to know like what's okay to make jokes about and what's not okay to make jokes about? Or kind of are there boundaries being set up around what, what we can and cannot laugh at in these spaces? There, there are boundaries, uh, obviously, but uh, I think it's, it works a little bit differently than in, than, in, um, than in many other types of games because LARPs are so very intimate. They're not performed for an external audience, and you don't have to worry about an audience of of, of millions or even tens of thousands of players for, for 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 that particular game. In large, you have to you have to worry about the people who are in the room. Uh, so so it's more it's closer to to uh, to a dinner party or 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 maybe a, a speech given at an event or or a stand up comedy where sort of sort of there is a there is a feeling in a room and and you have to you have to sort of uh, uh your 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 humor has to be in tune with that group of people so now, so I, yeah i've been to my share of dinner parties and some it's a it's a great roaring laughter of time and other times um it can be a little bit uh tense um and i'm curious kind of if there's sometimes where those jokes fall flat or those jokes kind of are hitting different nerves especially perhaps uh, in a political game like some of the ones you mentioned where players might have different opinions on how things should be happening yes i mean obviously there is negotiation going on and and uh, and uh, one thing that happens is that is that before a larp uh, when people are signing up to the larp the designers usually try to communicate as clearly as possibly what is this larp about what are the themes that, is, that it is addressing, and possibly also give some reference points uh, to other works, other LARPs, films, books uh, that, that they are drawing from, and that will maybe help people also to situate uh, themselves as, or, or, or sort of uh, uh, work with their expectations, so that they're, they're showing up with the right expectations and, and the right frame of mind as to what they think is going to be going on in that setting. But, but of course, I mean, sometimes there are also jokes that just don't land, jokes that aren't, aren't funny or, or jokes that, that people don't like. Um, 
humor obviously also fails at times. Importantly, these games aren't being played in a vacuum, and this negotiation isn't always explicit, spoken or discussed when we play. At times, there's an implicit or unspoken negotiation when we play with others. This can lead to conflicts of expectations, what we want to get out of a play session with a given group. Let's hear again from Dr. Trammell talking about another infamous tabletop game, Cards Against Humanity, a game about matching controversial prompts to produce the most offensive slash funny answer. Cards Against Humanity puts a lot of burden on the player at the table to moderate their experience with the game. Um, if you're playing that game, there's going to be, um, uh, you know, a sensibility you have to have, right, about what is appropriate jokes to make and what's not. Um, uh, if you're in a group, right, where you recognize that you're at a diverse table, it's going to be really off color to make a race joke because, um, you know, people are going to get hurt by that, um, or they're going to hear it in a hurtful way. Whereas in a sort of homogenous group setting, uh, where there are, you know, maybe all white people at the table, that race joke might land in a very different way and that group might get it. And so that, you know, in the, that sense, that game relies a lot on the group. As Dr. Tremell points out, this also translates back to digital play. And, you know, you see this in other digital social games also. For example, uh, the Jackbox games, which are kind of like tabletop games, but on your TV screen, um, are really good at getting the sort of like social humor going. Those in-jokes in a crowd, they're good at kind of figuring out what that joke is between a group of friends and getting people to laugh about it and have a good gag around it. And they're really fun for that reason. And in a similar way, um, when you play a game like uh, Mafia or Werewolf or a social deduction game that where the interaction is really about talking to the other people at the table with you, um, I think tabletop games actually are really excellent conduits of humor um, because they play on those sort of social dynamics that make us laugh. Even Fiasco, going through that rule set, right? You know, um, when you get that James T. Kirk chair, that's going to fall. That's going to be hilarious for some groups, but it's going to fall flat for other groups. And that's why it has that sort of rich example of a list going on in it, right? Because the group knows what's funny for it, and the group can then self select into the kind of humor that they want to play with or against. And so I think that's an important thing um, happening in those spaces. But what happens when the negotiation between players becomes contested, when there's conflict over the values of a playgroup or between the players at the table? Dr. Tremell considers this in the case of one group of players for the board game Diplomacy. One of the places it's come into my research is looking at some fan communities where humor has become an object of contestation. Um, and so this happened a lot in um, uh, the old Diplomacy wargaming community. So I've read extensively many of the diplomacy wargazines out there looking to see what the politics of the group, these groups are and what the dynamics between friends of these groups were. And in some of them, there's a group uh, publishing circuit um, that happened in the 1970s called the New York Conspiracy. It was, you know, fans of diplomacy who play games of diplomacy. Um, and the fans were mostly clustered in sort of like New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, um, tri-state area, more than tri-state area, but you know, generally the New York area. So they called themselves the New York Conspiracy. They're diplomacy players and they sent fanzines to each other um, to kind of play these games of diplomacy. Um, and the story goes that in some of these fanzines, um, many of the people in the New York Conspiracy 
Uh, and again, these were like 18, 16, 20 year old people communicating with each other, each other, you know, started playing into sort of off color sense of humor, right? Like using hate speech as humor, the sort of thing that you might expect a game like Cards Against Humanity would ask its players to look at for humor. And I think this is where it gets a little dicey, right? Because in this group, you had a bunch of presumably white men um, making jokes at the expense of, you know, um, people of color, uh, gay people, women in the group, etc. Teasing, you know, using hate speech, uh, lots of words I wouldn't care to repeat in this podcast to joke about them. And then saying when criticized or, you know, someone would say, hey, please don't use language like this. Um, and then saying to folks in those moments, um, hey, um, uh, we should be allowed to speak like this because it, we're just having some fun. It's, it's just fun. Um, and I think this is where humor in tabletop games, or at least in the research I've done, becomes a little more problematic because you can see, first of all, this is replicating, or I guess maybe laying a foundation for the sort of trollish humor we see on the internet today, the stuff the alt-right really has a field day with um, and uses uh, fault, things like false equivalence um, to say, well, we should be able to say this because it's equivalent to saying that, right? When the two things aren't actually equivalent. Um, but also because I think that these are sort of perennial conversations that happen within gaming. These are the sort of things that happen in chat rooms and digital games all the time. Um, and these are things that have happened in fanzines for not just diplomacy, but other games all the time. And the thing that happens with this that I think is really sort of insidious is that um, it becomes a barrier of entry for minoritized people who are interested in playing games. It becomes the sort of thing where maybe in that group it's okay. And maybe, you know, in this example of diplomacy, um, the folks who uh, said, please don't do this anymore, they kept being friends. They kept on playing diplomacy with each other. You know, the games didn't get shut down or anything like that. Um, and the, some of the hate speech continued. But the thing that happened that's really, I think, should be concerning for anybody who's a fan of games is that that circle didn't broaden. It didn't widen. It didn't grow to be a circle where more people could get kind of involved in the conversation. And so I think that's where sort of in my research, you see humor being a sort of um, tricky thing, um, especially as people try to navigate sort of off-color humor and make a space for that in their games, um, because that's the sort of thing that's not funny to everybody. And when something's not funny to something, someone, uh, if you're like me, I'm, I'm Black, right? That's, that's a group I'm not going to want to play with. That's a game I'm not going to want to play because it, it's suddenly saying, well, this isn't for you. This joke isn't for you. And here's Dr. Kosurek on another way that collective joking translates to these digital gaming spaces and perhaps a strategy for how to fight against that. I think there's so much room for, for joking, but I also think joking can become this kind of like gatekeeping thing. So it's like a bond, but it's also a filter. Um, and I think sometimes that's like for better or worse, right? Like, and I... Um, I was like a college radio DJ and was very, very into music. And I used to like review records and stuff. And I remember this like guy trying to like talk down to me about music. And he was just like, oh, have you heard of such and such? And it'd be like, you know, some random band. And I'm like, yeah, or, or no, or whatever. And he would always react. And so I started making up bands. Like I was like, oh, have you heard of this? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, no, you haven't. Cause I made it up. Like, I, I was so annoyed. Um, and like, but it, I mean, it was the same thing he was doing, right? Like, I don't need to know like every random thing that ever happened in the history of music to like care about music or to know something about music or to have opinions about music. And I, I think um, 
we see that in our own games too. It's like, oh, you haven't played like all 743 hours. Like how dare you have an opinion? And it's like, well, I didn't like the 600 hours I played, so I'm good, right? Like, or like, I don't actually care about that kind of game at all. And there's tons of games that I'm just like, you know, I don't really like playing first person shooters. Like I personally find them boring. Does that mean they're bad or people shouldn't play them? Like, no, right? It just, I don't care. And I, I think like it really everyone deserves to be able to not care about certain things, but still be engaged with a hobby or in a medium. And it's like, I'm sure there's lots of people that don't care about the Sims at all, but I think the Sims is awesome. Right. And you're allowed to care or not care about different parts of things. Like there's no way anybody alive has played every single video game that like they should or could care about. Um, but that doesn't mean like that they're not having valid experiences with the medium or that the, like their experience with games is not important to them. And to close this episode's look at play across time, format, and group size, we speak with Allison Cole, co-creator of the role-playing game Alchemistresses, about collaborative design, intimacy, and some of the magic and humor that can come out of group play when approaching those awkward or frustrating group play moments with kindness. The thing I did for my master's thesis work was I designed seven games with seven people that I was different levels of intimate with, uh, from someone I hadn't met at all to someone who I had known for 20 years and was my best friend. And so it was it was analyzing intimacy. Uh, and so I did that with a bunch of people. And the goal was to <laughs> make games that felt like the relationships I had with the people um, through the different stages of intimacy. And what I learned from that was just how, I guess, I see awkwardness as a type of humor. Uh, I see awkward pauses as funny. I know they can, they can go into uncomfortable, but I think when you combine awkwardness with intimacy or kindness, it is humor, whereas opposed to awkwardness without those intimacies or kindnesses can be uncomfortable or unpleasant. And so a lot of the process that I did in that designing were these like funny spaces, uh, like it's funny spaces to be in, to feel. And then what came out of them were games that were often also awkward, but mechanically we're like funny and playful. And I think, yeah, I think it comes from this, this space of trying to do something intimate, having comfort and having kindness from everyone who is involved in that effort. You get these like a lot of laughter, a lot of fun moments, a lot of weird, weird games. That's it for this week's episode of the Humor and Games podcast. Thanks to our contributors this week, Dr. Carly Kosurek, Dr. Aaron Trammell, Dr. Yako Stenros, and Allison Cole. See you next time on the Humor and Games podcast. The Humor and Games podcast is produced in conjunction with TAG, the Technoculture Arts and Games Institute out of Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada.